Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Pensacola, Florida is Quint Studer. And Quint is the author of a Wiley book. And uh, I just had to get him on. I had to pursue him for a long time to get him on. But we finally got him on Inside Personal Growth. And it's called The Busy Leader's Handbook. Um, How to Lead People in Places that Thrive. And we're speaking with somebody who is a thought leader in that area and definitely is going to be able to give us um, some background about this. And Quint, I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, Quint's a lifelong businessman, entrepreneur, and student of leadership. Uh, He not only teaches it, he does it. He's worked with individuals at all levels and across a variety of industries to help them become better leaders and create high-performing organizations. Uh, He seeks always to simplify high-impact leader behaviors and tactics for others. Quinn has a great love for teaching his insights in his books and has authored eight of them in addition to the Busy Leaders Handbook. Uh, His book, Results That Last, reached number seven on Wall Street Journal bestseller list. He currently serves as the entrepreneur in residence at the University of West Florida and you can reach him at www.studeri.org or at www.vibrantcommunityblueprint.com. And both of those, Quint, will be at our, um, uh, we'll have those for our listeners on the podcast. So they'll be able to actually get those from uh, the, the website. So, a pleasure having you on. You and I spoke before at length, and I was just so enthralled by your background, what you've done, uh, your history. And, you know, you had to have a purpose for writing this book. You know, you you sold a big training leadership development company. Um, and I, what I was wondering when I was reading this is, what did you, as somebody who was out there, building a company like this that was helping leaders grow and become successful, what did you find that was missing um, that really wanted you to put it in this guidebook or handbook, as I call it? Because, you know, you even say in the book twice, right in the beginning, hey, you know what? You can start anywhere in this book. Just go turn the page to the to the place that you want to read it. As a matter of fact, you even put a separate page before they begin the book to let them know that. What was it that was uh, missing, Quint, or what was it that you thought you needed to tell or inform leaders of? I don't know if anything's missing, except I have great love and empathy for managers, particularly those in the middle. And it's pretty interesting when I've talked to executive teams over the, the years, I'll take and I'll show how many people directly report to them at the C-suite. And then I'll ask them how many employees they have. And it becomes real evident that 90% of all the employees don't report to them. So whoever has the best middle management team wins. Of course, that means you have to have a good C-suite team to realize that, develop it, develop those middle managers. So I I really wrote this book for middle managers, that that person that's caught in between the top and their employees. And yeah, I'm a big believer in training, you know, big believer in taking people and giving them two days of training. But what I found with middle managers is I can go to two days of training and let's say four hours is how to hire. And I'm going to get something out of it. But you know when I'm really going to need it? When I have to hire someone. 
I, I tell people, you know, we, we could do a high school course for every lady on childbirth and they'll get something out of it, but they'll really pay attention when they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I find that with middle managers, I want to write a book that they could easily go to when it hits them, how to have a tough conversation, mm -hmm. how to, how to have a, tell their boss, their boss needs to get a little bit better, how to handle a customer complaint. And I just want it to be just in time. Cause I, again, I, I think that middle manager has the toughest job out there and the more we can support them, the more we can build them up, the better the company will be. Well, and I think it is more of a book that's about reminders, right? I think what happens is you get real busy. We live in an always-on, fast-paced world. This world just keeps going, Quint. And, you know, for middle managers, it's not that they forget this, but in the moment, you know, sometimes you get caught up in your emotions and you do things that you don't really want to do. And I think the book is a good reminder to stop, become aware, uh, look at where you are, and don't lead from emotions. You even uh, quoted, um, I'm trying to for uh, Don Miguel Ruiz was one of the quotes that you had in the book, right? Don't take it personally. Right? Well, I think too, Greg, as a middle manager or any manager, we have a tendency to take what we're not doing. So I, when my talks or my training and my books, I want people to actually read it and say, you know, I'm, I'm not as bad as I'm thinking I am right now. Right. No, I, I'm better. I'm doing most of these things. Now, I also think there's a few things in there that will give them that will be things they aren't doing. But I bet you 80%, 75%, they're going to say, ah, good, I'm doing that. I'm mm -hmm. doing that. I don't like writing books where people get discouraged and depressed reading them how bad they are. There's enough in the world telling us that. Right. I want, I want a book where somebody says, you know what? Yeah, I could do better in communication, but, you know, I'm not as bad as I think. Because, you know, managers or leaders tend to take home the employee that doesn't work, the customer complaint. They, they sort of miss the good stuff they do. And I want to always focus in on, hey, you're doing a lot of good things, but it's all about tweaking and fine-tuning and getting a little better. Stephen Covey used to say, or written his book said, you know, we're always sharpening our saw. Right, right. And you mentioned that you worked with hundreds of leaders in many different industries, which, you know, it's very apparent growing a leadership training company, right? Why, in your estimation, is being self-aware, which is what I just talked about, and coachable at the top of the qualities that you like to see in leaders and then add to that almost what are some of the tips for becoming more self-aware and coachable that actually are in your book? Well, thank you. You know, this came to me, um, I was meeting for breakfast with a fellow named Harry Gruner. Harry's a managing partner of a venture capital firm called JMI. And of course, Harry had invested a lot of money in, in the Studer Group. And after it got sold to Huron Healthcare, we, I was sitting down with Harry and I was just curious, you know, he invested a lot of money in my company and other companies. And I just said, Harry, when you go to invest in a company, what do you look for? And, and Greg, I thought he was going to say the typical, can you raise prices? Because that puts money to the bottom line right away. What's your runway in the marketplace? So I, I was almost ready to hear answers that I thought I would get, and I didn't. Mm -hmm. He said, well, we look for two things. How self-aware is the founder? Because obviously, 
we're not investing to keep it the same. So if they're not aware of where that needs to get better, we're going to have a problem. And the second thing is these are highly successful people, yet we're going to coach them on how to even be better. So he said the two major things we look for before we invest in a company are self-awareness and coachability. Then, then I thought of all the executives, because, you know, I've worked with almost, I think the other day I looked at out of the top 100 healthcare providers in the country, I worked with 80 of the CEOs. And, and now I might work with other businesses and so on. And I thought, which were the ones that really were the most successful? And it was self-awareness and, and coachability. And I'll tell you just a brief story. Um, Dennis Phillips passed away about two months ago. And Dennis was a long-term healthcare executive and very successful. And just yesterday, I connected with his son, who's now also in healthcare. So his name just became apparent. And I said to him, I remember the first time I met his dad. Um, I was doing a two-day conference in Pensacola. His dad came with his executive team from Fry Medical Center in uh, the Carolinas and he sat, I remember where he sat, and this is a, a, a successful CEO. And um, he sat there for two days, and I just remembered how engaged he was. And when he got back to his, his hospital, he had a town hall meetings and apologized to them because he said, I have learned some things. I need to be better with employee engagement. I need to be better in training leaders. I just want to apologize that I haven't been paying as much attention as I should have, but I'm going to from now on. So here's a fella that was one of the best leaders in healthcare, yet he had that self-awareness of what he could do better, and he became coachable. And um, he was a remarkable, amazing human being, because that was 20-something years ago, and I still remember him. So I think that self-awareness is hard, Greg, because the higher up we go, the more people feed that we're right. And right. we get that we're right because, you right. know, I'm boss, I'm a this, I'm a that. Yeah. And, and I think we, we lose that self-awareness and people are afraid to give us that self-awareness because, um, you know, they're a little intimidated. They don't know how we're going to take it. Um, and, and so we, we just don't get that feedback we need to be better. And then I think we're always coachable. We do mid-year reports. Um, I have a fellow named Jonathan Griffith who runs um, our retail stores and my um, AA baseball team. And we do this report and, and mid-year report, and they fill out questions. One of the questions is, how can I be a better leader? And Jonathan said, well, sometimes you get too far ahead of me. You, you announce things to the staff, and you and I haven't connected enough. So I, I'm okay with what we're announcing, but I'm behind the eight ball and getting the staff to go. So if you would just slow down and include me more before you would make announcements, I'd appreciate it. I am so grateful for that. So in the last two months since we did that, I will call him and say, okay, I'm slowing down. I'm pausing. So I, I think I just can't tell you when I look back now, it, it, but we as CEOs and executives or even middle managers, our employees sometimes are afraid to give us that type of feedback. Well, and I think you bring up an important point through the stories, you know, self-awareness is probably number one. And that comes from leaders becoming mindful of how they're treating others, inclusion, like you just talked about with this gentleman who's operating your team. Um, it's so important for us to listen. And that brings me to feedback loop. 
because, you know, this was feedback that you got from him that made you more self-aware, made you more mindful. And I think as uh, Einstein said, uh, you can't change the problem from the thinking in which you had the problem. And I'm <laughs> sure I messed up the quote, but the reality is, is that you have to up-level how you're going to think about it. And you speak about this feedback. Can as a leader, how do we create great feedback loops? And as well, learning how to not take this feedback personally, right? So this gentleman was willing to stand up to you, even though you were the owner of the team, and say, hey, Quint, you know, don't get ahead of me, slow down. And that takes a lot of courage sometimes when you're dealing with somebody who owns the business, right? Um, because you, sometimes you're concerned. So you have to communicate, Quint, that it's okay to do that. That's the kind of feedback I want. That's what I'm looking for. Um, you know, one of the great things I think um, that I've learned over the years from first starting out as a special ed teacher, which took complex things down to simple, then all my years in healthcare, where again, you're trying to always make things so you can execute them, is creating tools and techniques. And I don't think it just happens. I don't think you just say, I want your feedback. I can't tell you how many CEOs I've heard say, come on, give me your feedback. And then when they get it, they react in such a way that everybody says, well, I'm never going to do, I'm never going to do that one again. Let me give to great tools. Let me give you some brief tools and we can get more as people want to write and so on. Um, I think there's that first tool. Of, of just making sure people rate meetings. I know it sounds crazy, but after every meeting, we have people rate the meeting on a one through 10. Because we've all been to meetings that we're running and, or we've been, you know, I sit there in the CEO and I shake my head like, oh yeah, this is a great meeting, blah, blah, blah. And then I leave and I whisper to the guy next to me, what a waste of time that was. Now, maybe people listening never do that type of inappropriate behavior like I did, but, um, so I started rating meetings and, and basically it tells people to rake it on a one through 10. And I like that because it gives us feedback. And if somebody ranks it uh, a, a high score, but then they go out in the hallway and complain about it, they lose credibility. That's a quick feedback. An- another quick feedback that, that we create for executive teams is something that I created when I was with Studer Group and now here on, which is a very simple straight A leadership technique where you do an anonymous survey, they tell what level they're at, and you ask some simple questions. On a one through 10, um, how well do you think our evaluation tool holds people accountable? On a one Mm -hmm. through 10, how well is the training we're providing giving you the skill set to be successful? On a one through 10, how consistent is our leadership here? On a one through 10, how well are we at adapting best practices? And I I, I have CEOs I can't believe because what we show is we're not aligned. And the key is how aligned are you? How well do you execute? And how well do you hold people accountable? Then there's the other techniques. We, and we'll give all of this away, such as that mid-year report. You know, we tell everybody, here's some questions. And it's not an evaluation tool. It's how can I be a better leader? Um, we're big in employee engagement surveys. But I always go anonymous. And I know we want to have a culture where people should be able to tell you. And then sometimes it's role modeling. I was working with the CEO one day and she said, you know, my, my, I want feedback, but the managers are afraid to give me feedback. And I said, well, that's because you're intimidating. She goes, I'm not intimidating. I said, you're intimidating me just having this conversation. Uh-huh. And, and she, she said, oh, 
She, I said, do people ever, ever um, challenge you? Now, I'm not sure they did, but she said, yeah, they do. I said, when? She said, well, on our one-on-ones. I said, well, they're being very polite. They're not going to challenge you in a public meeting because they've been trained that you challenge in private, not in public. So they're doing what they think is appropriate. So if you want to build a culture where people aren't afraid to bring things up to you, you've got to role model it. So next time you get feedback privately, say to them, I hold that. At our next department meeting, I want you to ask me that in front of everyone. Accept it and then role model how appreciative you are that you got that feedback because it made you better. The last little tip I give sometimes to see if you really got a culture that gives feedback is I tell leaders to take a position they know makes no sense. Just take a position that you know that people shouldn't, should say something. Mm -hmm. When you take that position, see who speaks up. Because sometimes you've got to create that culture where people care enough about the organization that they're willing to become a little bit uncomfortable. But then it gets to the point where they're uncomfortable not challenging the organization. I like the advice. I think that for any leader listening right now, mid-level leader, uh, that the points you're giving them, and obviously, you know, get the handbook. We're going to plug the handbook here because this handbook is really something you should keep on your desk. You know, it's something you should just have as a reference guide, you know, and you state that the best leaders are followers. This was um, not so much new to me, but like I said, it was something that you reminded me of, right? Because I look at some of the greatest leaders that we've had that you look at Gandhi and Dalai Lama and all the rest of them, and those are spiritual leaders. But the point is followers. And you, st- and you said that the mindset and attitude of followers is very important. You believe the best leaders are great, lead- are great followers. What advice do you have for the leaders that are listening to become better followers? Now, you already gave some, right? Because you've been talking about it. But this was a part in the book that I thought was really important. Well, you know, I I appreciate that because I think it's missed. You know, again, I come from an industry for many years where there's two types of people that entered leadership. There was the type that worked from, worked their way up. You know, I'm I'm a nurse. And then one day I become a nurse manager. I'm Mm -hmm. an accountant. And one day I'm head of the finance department. And then eventually I'm the VP or the chief financial officer. Um, But then there's a whole other group that, you know, got their bachelor's degree, then their MBA or something like that. And they sort of started off in a bit of a leadership role. And I don't think they have the skill set in some ways that the person that came through the ranks did. Because when you're a follower, you sort of know how things need to be communicated when you were in that position. You sort of know what type of boss worked for you. So when um, I was the president of a hospital, I would meet with employees. One of the questions I always ask them is, how many of you work for a good supervisor? And the hands would go up, and then I'd say, tell me one reason why they're a good leader. And they'd say something like, they're approachable. And I said, help me understand what that looks like for you. Then they'd say, they'll never ask me to do anything they wouldn't do themselves. Um, They work shoulder to shoulder with me. And and I I love that. And then I write a note to all the managers saying, well, it's approachability. It's willing to work shoulder to shoulder and not asking anybody to do anything you wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. So when we're a follower, we should know what works. 
we sort of know what we need because it's really, and people might not like this word, but it's about being compliant, you know, and, and as a, as a leader, we want to create the best practice. So people comply to it, not because they have to, because they think it makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. Well, when we're a follower, we learn what those things are. And so I think if you're a great follower, you become a better leader. And I think when you're a leader, sometimes you're also following the people that should be following you because they have the expertise. And it's one of the things, Greg, that I find is interesting is when you're a follower, the disadvantage of being a follower to a leader is you do have to change a bit because if you're a follower, you're pretty much getting direction. You're pretty much being told many times what to do. And I've noticed it with people that go into a new position. They, they want the answer. So I tell people one of the biggest things you have to do as a leader is check your ego, even when you know the answer, and say these magic words, what do you think? What would you recommend? We just um, right. had a change in our property division, and we promoted someone to a new operational position. And it was pretty curious because she'd send me a lease, and she'd say, do you think we should sign this lease? And I'd say, what do you recommend? And then she'd say, I think we should. Then the next time she says, do you think we should sign this lease? I'd say, what do you recommend? About the third time, she says, I recommend we sign this lease. Mm -hmm. And that's how we develop people, by making sure we're always asking them their thoughts before we give ours. And that's hard, Greg, because the ego, I want to give that answer. Because when I give that answer, I'm not helping them, but I'm sure helping my ego feel better about me. Well, you want to give them autonomy, right? I think the key to a good leader is having people that work with you, alongside of you, synergistically with you, like this uh, woman that was asking you those questions. And it's very important they have that autonomy. One of the things I always say is, you know, thing about followers, if there was a camera on you all day long, and then you played back the camera at the end of the day, everybody you interacted with, whatever happened during the day, did you like what you saw? And did what you see actually uh, make a difference? somewhere within yourself, the company or whatever. And if you could have a camera running all day long and that was happening, that'd be great. And you talk about this ego and leading with humility. And this was another important point of the book. This is sometimes easier said than done. Okay. For a lot of leaders, look, we have a leader in the white house who can't get out of his way with relation to his ego. So what, would be some of your advice on removing the ugly head of ego and to finding humility needed to lead effectively. I think you have to be courageous enough to always disrupt your own self. And you have to be courageous enough to sometimes put the elephant out in the room. So for example, you know, I own a baseball team and we don't have a a baseball season, but we were one of the only minor league teams in baseball that have kept all the staff. We haven't laid off. Well, because during the baseball season, they meet Mondays at 9 a.m. Makes a lot of sense if you have baseball games. Mm -hmm. So a couple weeks ago, the question was, do we still need to meet Monday at 9 a.m.? Because we're doing a lot of stuff on weekends now, movies and fireworks and Airbnb. And so you had to deflate that ego and say, am I going to be willing to disrupt a habit I've always gotten into? And I think where the ego gets in the way, one of the talks I give is leadership's inside. It's fixing us on the inside. 
when I'm pointing out what's wrong, Greg, uh, this is maybe none of your listeners have this issue because they're probably more emotionally mature than me. But when I'm pointing <laughs> out something wrong, I want to tell you a big part of it is me feeling better about me. Look mm-hmm. how smart I am. Yeah. Didn't you notice this? Um, ego is one of those things that I think we get to a point, and I tell the story. I said, I've had such bad experiences with my ego because ego is defined as an un, uh, self-importance, a, high, a heightened self-importance of oneself. And I will tell you, I've had some experiences. Do you want another definition for ego, Quint? Well, there's easing God out. There you go. That's usually the one I use is you're okay. edging God out, edging God out. <laughs> So, so what, what happens with, with this is um, I remember one time I was director of marketing at a hospital and I sat there one day and thought, you know, I should probably be running this hospital. In fact, I should probably be running all hospitals. And an hour later, I was sitting at the board chairman and the CEO offering my resignation over a mistake I had made. So my ego went from, I should be running this place to please don't fire me, which they didn't. But I'll give you a cute ego story because I thought of this today when I was reading your questions again. Um, And it goes back, but here's this typical one of those moments. And I remember it so well because I actually deflated my ego. So, you know, I don't do it much when I remember stories like this, but it was hospital doctor's day and we decided to do doctor's week. So we got a group of nurses and people that work with the doctor's medical records And they did a whole doctor week and they called it VIP, most important physicians. And we did car washes. We did food. We did everything you could. And it was a great week. And that Friday, my assistant said to me, oh, remember, there's a movie tonight at the Naval base honoring our physicians and all the doctors and their families are invited to go watch this movie. Mm -hmm. Now I'm thinking, who's the idiot that thought of this? This is insane. It's Friday night. I'm tired. I bet you these doctors are exhausted and they probably don't want to show up at this movie night. It's not easy to get on the Navy base here. You have to go through identification. No one's going to show up. And I almost told them to cancel it. And then I said, nah, I can't tell them to cancel it, but I got to go out there because when this thing bombs, I'm going to have to hold them up because they're going to be devastated when no doctors show up. So I drive out there. The movie starts at seven. I get out there. There's like a networking session. And I got out there a little early. And I walk in and they got food for all these doctors and their families. They got a University of West Florida baseball team there. There was some baseball theme and they had baseballs they were going to sign. And um, I walk in and our, our, our staff that put it on is wearing VIP shirts, most very important physician. And no one's there. And I'm thinking, I knew it. I knew this would bomb. These doctors are exhausted. They went home. Nowhere they get in their car, drive to the Navy base and go in. So about 630, I'm just about ready to start piling them. What a great week it was. Don't feel bad. In the back of my mind, Greg, I'm thinking, see, I was right. This thing bombed. But all of a sudden, people started showing up. Then it got so crowded, they had to delay the start of the movie to get everybody into their chairs. Brooks Hodnett, the president of medical staff, came up to me. His two boys are each carrying autographed baseballs. And he says to me, this is the greatest thing this hospital has ever done. And I go, yep. 
Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is I was 100% wrong. And when I look back, why were they right and I was wrong? Because they see these doctors every day. They were saying, are you going to be there Friday night? I can't wait to meet your, your kids. So again, it, it, sometimes we just got to laugh at ourselves as our ego gets deflated. Well, it's a great story. And I think it, it many people could probably relate because they've been to events like that that they thought were going to bomb. And if they just hung it out, it's persistence. And, and obviously being an administrator and president of hospitals, you can get this. And persistence, I think one thing doctors have is they're incredibly persistent at trying to figure out how to make things work, right? And so I'd give them credit for that because I'm a big fan of Lennox Hill, <laughs> which yeah, is the TV series. And it was a TV series that Netflix did that I thought was exceptionally well done. And when you look at the characters in there, it's really interesting. Now, you have a great quote from Roy Disney. And he said, it's hard to make decisions when you know what your values are. It's not hard to make decisions when you know what your values are. Why is leading with the company's values so imperative in your estimation? And what recommendations do you have for revisiting your personal and organizational values? Because, um, look, I, I, I tell this quick story. I'll tell a quick story. I was seven years old, and we were in Palm Springs. And um, I got to meet Walt Disney in an elevator. My parents were riding, and there were only uh, four of us. Walt Disney, myself, my mother, and my father. The elevator was coming down because he went there when he had lung cancer to stay out in the desert. And I said, to, I turned to my mom and I pulled and I said, Mom, can I shake his hand? That's all I wanted to do. And I went over to him and she said, sure. I said, Mr. Disney, it's nice to meet you. And I shook his hand and I tell you that that has made an artistic and indelible imprint in me, but very, very nice person. And the point that I'm making is there's a guy that really knew his values with his brother. They, he stood up for him. He stood up to Roy. He said, Roy, we're going to do the Pirates of the Caribbean, so we're going to make it smell like uh, the bayou. Do you remember that story? And he wanted it to smell and look like the bayou. And Roy said, oh, it's too expensive. And he goes, nothing's too expensive. Just get it done. Okay. <laughs> I think, Greg, for me, one of the best books I ever read was a book by James Collins. And I'm not going to surprise everyone and not say good to great. I'm going to say built to last. Mm -hmm. Built to last is a little more academically oriented. He wrote it when he was still at Stanford, where they studied all these businesses that made it over the long history. What defined those that made it long term and what defined those that did not. And he said there was always defining moments in a hospital, in a company, excuse me, where they had to choose between revenue and values. Mm -hmm. Those that chose revenue maybe had a short-term game, but they didn't do well long-term. Yep. Those that picked values might have had a short-term hit, so they did better long-term. My, my grandson, Cooper Kennedy, goes to University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, and he had an ethics course this year. So he called me up and said, where's a time when you had to make that decision? And, and I'll go quick, but... When I, when I owned Studer Group, I, I refused to sign non-competes. I didn't have the employees on non-competes because I wanted them to move if they wanted to. And I refused to do non-competes. So a hospital would say, we don't want you working with that hospital. I said, no, our mission is to make healthcare better. So I can't do that. Well, we had a situation where we had one 
one provider that paid us a lot of money and a competitor of theirs, they thought was a competitor, wanted us to contract with them. Mm-hmm. And they were going to, because their size was smaller, they were going to pay us about a third as much as the big one. So like we always do, we went to the big one and we said, we're going to sign a contract with the small one. And they said, well, if you do that, we're going to drop our contract. So I had a choice between losing $2.3 million contract in order to get a $900,000 contract. And um, as we were talking, I was actually on the car phone and people were talking to me, was on speaker, and my wife was riding with me. And as we were listening to this, she even looked at me and said, well, you, you can't do that, which meant you can't not take this smaller contract because it's against our values. So we basically said to them, I'm sorry you feel that way, but we are going to sign with them because our mission is to make everything better in the long run. They stayed with us too, because if they would have dropped us, then they would have given the other one an exclusive. But the the reality is, is you get those questions. And I was very lucky. I worked for a fellow named Mark Clement at Holy Cross Hospital in Chicago. And this guy still today, CEO of TriHealth Healthcare, man, you work for somebody and you watch them put values first. And it has such an impact on me. I've always tried to make sure I do that same thing. Well, I think everything in your book is very current to today's times, even more so. Because what we need is we not only need moral leaders, but we need leaders that understand the values that you're talking about that we just talked about. And during these times of COVID-19, Lots of things are changing for leaders, let's face it, Um, and the organizations themselves. How are we going to survive this? What are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, how are we going to get the financing? And as a matter of fact, it's so rapid that leaders have to be incredibly nimble today, uh, extremely nimble. And you state that shifting our mindset about change is important, that change isn't some remarkable disruptive event. It just is. And the only thing constant about life is change, right? So it's a constant feature in our world. How would you recommend that leaders deal with the ongoing consistent, steady change, both personally and professionally, because they're having to deal with both? Well, I think one, educate themselves on change. You know, Greg, it's real interesting. I served on the curriculum committee with Regina Herzler at Harvard. And when we looked at what are the skills that a leader needs, excuse me, what are the skills a leader needs? uh, We looked at everything you're taught, cash flow and supply management, chain management and, you know, hiring and firing. And we came up with the fact that what about change? So, so one of the things that I, I put in most of my books and I talk all the time about is, do you understand change? whether it's the Heath brothers or Maslow or Cotter, there's all these change. I don't care which one you pick, you can pick mine. But the reality is, Mm. do you understand change? Because there's some natural things that happens with change. And if we know that, if we Mm -hmm. know that change creates discomfort, I was um, with the Walton Foundation. I was with the president. uh, I heard the president of Walmart when I was in Arkansas. And they talked about their change. And they hired a change expert. And the first thing that this change expert had them do was take – the, wa- the wrist they're wearing their watch on and put it on the other wrist. Say, so wear it that way for a week. And people said, oh, my God, don't. And here, you know, they're trying to make everybody change, and they don't even want to move their watches. From one- <laughs> and they do, of course, because they're doing it. So I think it's one understanding change. 
Number two, be authentic. And that's one of the things, you know, you're, at the end you said, what are a few takeaways? Don't fake it. If you're a little nervous, tell your people you're nervous. If you're a little stressed, tell your people you're stressed, but tell them what you're doing about it. I'm a big Winston Churchill fan, and don't think he wasn't stressed when they were bombing, you know, Great Britain for 52 right. straight nights. Right. So he, but he also always had that hope we're going to get through this. So I'm, I'm a, I've done a lot of COVID-19 seminars, a lot of webinars, and there's no excuse for not being better coming out of this. I, I, we can put it on your website. We created a thing called downtime audit. Well, you know, we have a, many of us are pausing, you know, we get a chance to work in our business first or our, on, on business. our business versus, versus in, in the business. We get yeah. to work to work on ourselves. Yeah. So what are we doing? So we created an audit. Number two is training and development. What are you doing to building your skill set? And it's also a great, great time to build emotional bank accounts. And that was sort of my close. And you said, what are two takeaways? It was be authentic and um, build your emotional bank account. You know, you have a tendency right now with your clients to build an emotional bank account. You have a tendency with your employees to know that we care about you. You know, we really pushed our employee assistance program right now because we know there's stress. We know there's emotion. If you're downsizing, make sure you're offering some type of outplacement service to people. It might be tough, but it tells them you care about them. And if you can, do everything you can to, you know, the reason we didn't lay off our employees and we're lucky enough that we had enough cash reserves not to is because our mission is to improve the quality of life for the community. I just Mm -hmm. could not envision laying off 100 so people and thinking that was improving the quality of life for our, our community. So I think it's Take time to learn about change. Take time to audit your own personal skill set and audit um, your business skill set. But then take time to learn. If they go to our website, we offer tons of very inexpensive classes from customer service to change management to how to hire. Um, So I I just think when we get out of this, there's no excuse that you're not a better leader and a better company. And I also do a lot with communities. Everybody's on pause, and that's the unusual thing. Normally, only a few are on pause. We're almost all on pause. It's like NASCAR threw down the yellow flag. Right. Who's going to come out of this the better? Who's going to come out of it right? And um, those that do will will benefit, and those that don't will blame COVID-19. I was talking to a hospital not too long ago. They asked on LinkedIn if I talked to them, and they're part of a big system, and they've gone from number 10 in patient experience to number 100-something like 100. And they said, well, you know, it's COVID-19. I said, I hate to break this news to you, but every hospital's got COVID-19. It ain't COVID-19 that made you go from 10 to 100. You quit doing some things you were doing when you were 10. So I I think, again, it's that asking for that clarity. And, you know, that's what we get. If, If we really have a good inside, we get moments of clarity where we can look at ourselves objectively. Well, and I'm not saying that COVID isn't a real thing. It definitely is. And Florida is being affected drastically. So is California. Uh, we've had closures again of businesses and so on. But but the but is this. Uh, fear always has been false expectation appearing real. Yes, we are losing people. But this is a health crisis. And you're a guy in health care. Um, what would you tell? Let's just say this is the wrap up. Because 
you know that I did work for Mayo for two years in consulting and they got a health application and telemedicine has exploded right now. It's just like through the ceiling, everywhere you go, they, they can't even keep the wheels on the cart. But, you know, when you looked at America's overall health report card, amount of diabetes, amount of heart disease, people overweight, whatever, what advice would you have for these leaders? who are in that same position. I've seen a lot of leaders lately trying to figure out ways to make their companies healthier. Well, I think, I think if you look at healthcare versus unhealthcare, the reality is I, I put Dr. Um, Amen and I know each other. Daniel Amen is a good friend of mine out here in Newport beach. I've been on the show, like probably, I don't know, six, seven times. And actually his sister I met him through his sister, through a spiritual leader in Oregon. So it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, John Maxwell named him and I to this transformational leadership, and 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 him and I got to know each other. We had lunch with John Maxwell, uh-huh. and he had a great cartoon on Instagram yesterday that I put, and he had a big lineup of everybody like pills and treatment lineup, right. and he had another one like improve your lifestyle, and no one was in that line. <laughs> and 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 I I think that's a, that's a real challenge here for for America. It's whether it's as any type of leader. Um, it's sort of interesting. This week I ran into a physician who's um, talks about being healthy, and they were quite heavy. And I thought, how am I going to listen to this doctor who's t- talking about being healthy? And you know, Doctor Amen is and his wife are the picture. Oh health, yeah, yeah. Health and so on. I got my brain MD stuff right here. So anyway. Um, <laughs> Um, I think I think in healthcare, and I'll go into healthcare. The challenge is, Greg, man, it's tough because you got all that money and capital. You built all that bricks and mortar. You've got all that debt financing, depending on you pushing people into that bricks and mortar. And all of a sudden, you might not need that bricks and mortar. And that's why I think healthcare is being disrupted mm-hmm. by the Googles, the Amazons, the WalMarts of the world because they're not carrying that that debt structure. But here's the good news about the COVID-19, and I agree, it's terrible, tragic, the whole bit. Yeah. What do people want most than anything in healthcare? Access. Telemedicine has given people access that they didn't have before. Um, my grandson was visiting me. His toe didn't look good. I took a picture, sent it to an ER doctor, and they said, "Here, soak it in this for three days. Here it is. Wow, is that better than going to the ER? Oh, the yeah. yeah. Care area. Yeah. Now, what, what they have to figure out with telemedicine is how to still create a great experience. Mm-hmm. Providence Healthcare out West, their patient experience for people getting telemedicine is actually extremely high. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, again, you know, you, you, you look at that old thing about the sales. You know, you, you, you look at which way the sales going to go, and this is a great time for leaders. We, we, I tell people all the time, we've, we've taken this time to really invest more in leaders, more in managers, more in communication, because uh, we want to come out of this. And for those that think, well, Quint, you, you just don't have these issues, let me explain what I have. I have a minor league baseball team with no baseball season. I, have, I own 200 squ- um, square, 200, um, Thousand square feet, square feet <laughs> of commercial real estate. Now, right. get into the, this is not the best time to have office space, okay? Correct. And, and I have... Two event centers. Well, in Florida, we came and have events most of the time. And, and, I, and I have, my wife has a bodacious olive oil shop and a coffee shop. 
And basically, she can't put a lot of people in there. So we've been hit like everyone else. Yeah. Um, and, and, but you know what? It is what it is. It's like the serenity prayer. You accept the things you can't change, the courage to change the things you can, the wisdom to know the difference here. Well, I think for our listeners, uh, the book is almost like um, a reference guide. So get it, pick it up, read it. We're going to have a link to Amazon to the book. We'll also have a link to the Busy Leaders Handbook.com, which is his website. Um, any things that we can put on our blog, we will, that uh, Quint gives us so that you could download, you know, maybe a free chapter or get access to this. But again, uh, main thing is, uh, most of our listeners will probably default and go to Amazon to buy this. That's why um, Jeff Bezos uh, went up $13 billion yesterday or day before in net worth because they're all buying not just books, but everything else from him. So, But Quint, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth, spending some time with our listeners, explaining what it's like to be a busy leader, but more important, not busy, but really focused, really efficient. And also somebody who is as important is keeping inclusion, uh, looking at feedback loops, making sure you have those. Everything you've said today has been extremely important. Thank you so much for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing your wisdom and knowledge. Um, any parting words? I just want to thank you. You know, it's in, you know, if you have a heart full of gratitude, there's little space for anything else. And I'm extremely grateful, Greg, for the impact you continue to make and grateful that you had gave me this opportunity to reach out to your listeners today. Thank you. Well, thank you and blessings to you and everybody in your organization and best of health to everybody down there in Florida. Thank you.